What does it mean to experience a deadly epidemic? In recent months, people have struggled with this question, but it's not a new question. Welcome to Experiencing Epidemics podcast. We are Gaspar Jakovac, Jorge Diaz Ceballos, and Ian Hathaway. And we want to explore this question as historians by delving into personal narratives drawn from the long history of people's encounters with epidemics. We do so thanks to the contributions of scholars based at the European University Institute and beyond. This project is brought to you as part of the COVID-19 Knowledge Hub of the European University Institute. Enjoy the show. France and Germany to go back into lockdown. France's president said last night the new spike would be harder and deadlier than the first. infections and hospital admissions have once again forced governments to impose tighter measures to contain the spread of the virus. For the whole month of November 2020 at the very least, public life throughout Europe will largely cease. As we enter this period of full and partial national lockdowns, we look back at the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. At the time, the places hit the hardest by the virus were retirement and nursing homes. Hopefully, we will have learned from the recent tragedies and will be able, this time, to avoid the high number of care home deaths due to COVID. However, as we look further back in time, it becomes clear that the health of the more vulnerable segments of society, such as the elderly, is not an entirely new concern. My name is Gaspar Jakovac, and on today's show we'll be listening to an audio essay by Ludwig Pelzel, a doctoral researcher in the Department of History and Civilization at a European University Institute. Ludwig's interests lies in the social and economic history of the pre-1800 Europe. After completing his studies in Germany and Sweden, he is now researching a little-known story of urban retirement homes in early modern Europe. At the time, just as today, the elderly could purchase their access to charitable institutions in order to stay safe and well-fed 
until the last of their days. In today's episode, Ludwig will take us to early 18th century Germany, where he considers the politics of running a retirement home through an epidemic. He will be talking about institutional, economic and ideological aspects of providing relief to poverty, disease and old age in the early modern period, and reflect on how plague time challenges faced by retirement homes in the past compare to those we are facing today. Hit by the plague epidemic of 1713, St. Catherine's Hospital in Regensburg lost roughly half of its retirees. Many elderly who had retired in the years preceding the plague outbreak simply vanished from its records. How did the officials of St. Catherine's Hospital deal with this catastrophe? What lessons were learned? How did they, if at all, modify their rules and business model? Ludwig's essay will be read by our very own Ian Hathaway. The places notably hit the hardest by the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic have been retirement and nursing homes. In Britain, the US and Germany, for example, between a fifth and a staggering 60%, depending on various counting methodologies, of all COVID-related deaths have occurred in such institutions, despite accounting for a much smaller share of the overall number of COVID-infected individuals. In Belgium, several nursing homes called for the help of units of Doctors Without Borders, who are normally deployed for disaster relief in developing countries. The pre-existing medical conditions of the patients, together with the insufficient sanitary measures and the spatial density within these institutions, have commonly been identified as the main reasons for this dire statistics. In Italy, the Milanese Albergo Pio Trivulzio made national news repeatedly during the crisis and became the symbol of this devastating situation and of the suffering of the elderly inside retirement and nursing homes more broadly. The directors of the Trivulzio are now accused of transporting infectious patients to other facilities without safety measures, of failing to procure protective gear for patients and staff, as well as the intentional concealment of pandemic-related fatalities in order to downplay the massive outbreak inside the institution. Now, as much as we might feel that this nexus of political and financial controversies surrounding healthcare and nursing institutions and their public management is quintessentially a modern phenomenon, it actually has intriguing historical precedents. After all, the Trivulzio Retirement Home dates back to the 18th century, when it was first established as a pious nonprofit foundation for the elderly. Very much like today, the backbone of the urban sanitary infrastructure of the early modern period, circa 1500 to 1800, 
was non-profit, consisting of private foundations, often de facto governed by the public, in the form of hospitals, which was a term for care-providing institutions in general. Institutions then were generally less functionally differentiated than today, so that a hospital could provide simultaneously short-term medical care, distribute alms to the poor, and serve as a retirement home with its own resident population. The sources of revenue of these hospitals were equally diversified, especially if they were foundations relying on their own endowment. Hospitals could run a massive agricultural business based on their landed estates, for example, or collect uh, interests for banking services to clients big and small. Due to the abysmal extent of urban poverty and to the all-too-porous social safety nets of the period, early modern hospitals constantly faced a demand for welfare that exceeded their capabilities by far. Many people in need were left to struggle with the resources they could provide by themselves, such as the support of family and friends, or even begging on the street. In these conditions, the institutions always had to square the circle, so to say, of staying faithful to their charitable mission, while at the same time keeping their budgets balanced and safeguarding their patrimony over the centuries of their existence. would slowly transform the welfare provisions of early modern hospitals, especially in their function as retirement homes. Many institutions went on to charge the elderly for food, clothing, and accommodation. The pricing should be understood as a compromise between covering costs and the charitable imperative put down in the hospital's founding charters. Now, whereas today medical bills and costs for individual long-term care render retirement homes expensive for insurers and families alike, early modern contemporaries were luckier in this regard. Medical treatments were still too rudimentary to be very costly, and labor for care was generally quite cheap. Providing food and shelter for the elderly was the essential cost factor involved. The financial structure of these provisions was particular, however. Often the elderly would make a one-time payment to the institution upon admission, which was to cover all services and food until their death, no matter when that would be. Whether this deal would result in a loss for the hospital depended largely on how long the retiree would live on after retirement. The risk baked into the steel was obvious. For much of the early modern period, there was no way of knowing how long people on average would live. Thus, it was easy for a hospital director to succumb to the allure of selling spots at the institution for quick money, under the expectation that the repayment in bread and board would be made in the future by his successors. Pensions sold decades ago to long-lived retirees would continue to cost the hospital dearly.
dynamics enter the stage. Like today, the spatial density of vulnerable individuals made hospitals hotspots of contagion, a fact of which early modern contemporaries were well aware. Cynically, the financial structure of the transaction put the premature death of the retirees, at least in theory, in the interest of the care-providing institution. An outbreak of whatever infectious disease could rid the hospital of numerous claimants within days and the emptied spots could be resold, relieving the burdened budget. At the same time, hospitals were, as welfare institutions, called to provide support to a community torn by human loss. This could lead to a profound conflict of interest for hospitals. On the one hand, the aftermath of an epidemic was a rare chance for them to restructure their finances by raising entrance payments for new retirees. On the other hand, this was the very moment when the urban communities needed affordable help the most. Notwithstanding the differences through time, epidemics back then and now forced healthcare officials to strike uneasy and always imperfect compromises between care provision and budget constraints. St. Catherine's Hospital in South German Regensburg was an urban care-providing institution which housed a large number of retirees. In 1713, the city was hit by what historians have somewhat clumsily named the Great Northern War Plague Outbreak. After a long war in the Baltic, which had facilitated the spread of disease. This was one of the last major outbreaks of plague in European history, and during it, a third of Regensburg's inhabitants perished. St. Catherine's Hospital was far from spared after the pernicious bacteria had crept inside its walls by September 1713. Amid dying and suffering, the most ordinary procedures were halted. The hospital's officials scrambled to keep up with the emergency and ceased to record the deaths of their retirees. Given that the retirees lived on site, their traces in the administrative uh, records of the hospital were manifold. So-called Frunbücher contained the yearly admissions of retirees, some of their personal information, as well as records of their death. Day-to-day -day life within the institution was captured by House and Ratsprotokoll, uh, House and Council protocols, in which the directors and the steering council of the hospital noted small events or decisions uh, they had made. But the many elderly who had retired in the years preceding the plague of 1713 simply vanished from the records. Amidst the chaos of the epidemic, the hospital's meticulous record-keeping fell into disarray. 
We know nothing about the fate of these people, but in all likelihood, they fell victim to the disease. This strange presence of both feverish attempts to contain the epidemic taking place in the city and in the hospital, as well as the halting of normal life and everyday activities such as bookkeeping, likens epidemics of the past to those today. Should historians in a century's time look back at the spring of 2020, they will see the same pattern. They will marvel at the hectic bundling of all political and social forces to limit contagion, while noting the gaping holes in our calendars intended to be filled by sporting events, restaurant dinners, or academic conferences that never took place. In every period of human history, the most emblematic traces that any epidemic leaves behind for historians to examine are perhaps the gaps, the ceasing of social life, the missing sources, the lives lost. It is hard to say how many retirees passed away at St. Catherine's Hospital during the plague outbreak of 1713. Thirty is a likely number. This figure would represent a mortality rate within the institution of roughly 50%, a humbling statistic that is, in some cases, surprisingly close to the estimates advanced for the current COVID crisis in nursing homes. But no matter the losses, contemporaries forcefully restarted what had been interrupted by the disease. The year of 1714 saw the arrival of 39 new retirees whose personal reasons for admission might have very well been prompted by the catastrophe itself. Now, would the directors seize the chance to raise the prices? They actually settled for a compromise. They did not give discounts due to the extraordinary circumstances, but they also did not try to wrestle higher sums from the elderly in order to restructure the budget. The understanding of justice and financial sustainability embedded in the entrance fees had survived the epidemic, at least temporarily. One could argue that the decision backfired. Just one decade later, in the 1720s, the hospital tumbled into a financial crisis. The officials then initiated a massive price rise, the effect of which were to last for the remainder of the 18th century. There is, of course, no simple causal explanation for this development, because the hospital in fact possessed various sources of income. However, the fact that the hospital directors had missed the opportunity to put their retirement business, so to say, on a sounder footing during the epidemic might have contributed to it. 
St. Catherine's Hospital's experience of the 1713 epidemic was without question one of unconditional suffering. The breakdown of order and of every routine was so complete that even scribbling the names of a deceased and a date of death was already beyond what was possible. But while the graves of many dead were still fresh, the decision-makers faced the question of how they would respond and adapt to their changed circumstances. This epidemic was not just an event that was suffered by those who experienced it. It also opened a space for decision-making in a new post-epidemic social reality which gave contemporaries the rare opportunity to redesign their environment. For the hospital directors, this could have taken the form of rethinking the ideas of individual charitable deservedness and institutional financial sustainability. In other words, they might have reconsidered the function of public welfare in times of crisis. Instead, they chose to face the half-empty hospital and a devastated community with a pricing policy that was remarkably unresponsive to the gravity of the change all around them. Arguably, by doing so, they failed to aim at either of their policy goals, neither widening access to retirement much, nor decisively relieving the budget. Perhaps the story of St. Catherine's Hospital reminds us that deadly epidemics do not automatically lead to profound social change, neither in 1713-14 nor in 2020. Instead, they can also function as a trigger for a universally human propensity to cling to the time-proven practices under the promise of continuity after an unsettling social disruption. In any post-pandemic world, the continuation of the past is as much a decision as it is to break with it. for preparing today's incredibly moving and topical episode and, of course, to Ian Hathaway for reading the essay. A huge thank you also to all our listeners for following Experiencing Epidemics and supporting our podcast. If you like what you've heard, please tune in again on the 20th of November when we'll talk about the unexpected cultural links between early modern plague epidemics and vampires. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you.